the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us, as always. Follow us at danproftshow.com. Uh, you can get podcast program there, all the interviews. Uh, you can also find that at Spotify and iTunes. On social media, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including, of course, our new friends at Parler. And uh, we begin with the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee hearing on election irregularities and voter fraud yesterday. Uh, the Senate Homeland Security Committee chaired by Senator Ron Johnson. You know, Johnson, the, the, you know, let me just say something about these committee hearings. I understand the frustration. I understand these are normally mainly exercises in pontification for senators and even many of those testifying before the senators. And I understand that there's unlikely to be anything substantive that comes out of it with this exception. It does advance the conversation. Look, we're having it right now. It does advance the dialogue with respect to discussing what transpired on November 3rd. You do have the opportunity to revisit specifics, sort of do a stop, look, and listen after a flurry of six weeks of activity. So I think it is useful in that sense. And there were, there were some moments of helpful clarity, including from Rand Paul. But before we get there, I appreciated that Ron Johnson just sort of said at the outset, and whether you agree with him or not, he, he said, I, I haven't seen anything that would convince me that the results, the overall national result, would be overturned. Just because he hasn't seen it doesn't mean it's not there and all of those qualifications. But he's just sort of framing the hearing. But the question that follows is whether there was a level of fraud that would alter the outcome of the election. And uh, there has been a lot of fraud alleged, including in affidavit form. So these are matters we should explore These are questions that tens of millions of Americans have, skepticism, really, that tens of millions of Americans have. And if we care about the legitimacy of our electoral system, then we should do what we can to inspire confidence in the administration of our elections. That is a legitimate endeavor, and he's absolutely right. And so when it was dismissed by the usual suspects who project onto Ron Johnson the black helicopter conspiracies they peddle in and have for the last four years, like the disreputable senator from Michigan, Gary Peters, who narrowly defeated John James uh, on November 3rd. Uh, Tragedy that was. Uh, Ron Johnson finally had enough of it and uh, provided the necessary pushback to Gary Peters dismissing this as just sort of a, a misinformation hearing to Uh, indulge the pet conspiracy theories of Republicans, hardly. And uh, I thought Johnson, who's a measured guy, common sense guy, small C, common sense conservative, I thought his pushback was spot on. I just have to talk about Russian disinformation because the people peddling it are not on my side of the aisle. Senior Democrat leaders, including ranking member Peters, were involved in a process of creating a false intelligence product that was supposed to be classified, they leaked to the media 
that accused Senator Grassley, the President pro tem of the Senate, and myself of accepting and disseminating Russian disinformation from Andrei Durkash. I'd never heard of the person until they brought it up. Senator Peters introduced that, direct, that false information, Russian disinformation, into our investigation record. Fifty people associated with the intelligence community during the, our, after our Hunter Biden investigation and the revelations of the Hunter Biden computer said, oh, this is, you know, this is Russian disinformation. Now we find out, no, it's a real investigation by the Justice Department. So it's, it's just galling, and I just have to point out that the purveyors of Russian disinformation, Hillary Clinton's campaign, the DNC, the Steele dossier, the ranking member Peters accusing Senator Grassley and I of disseminating uh, Russian disinformation, that's where the disinformation is coming. That's where the false information, the, the lies, the false allegations. And I can't sit by here and listen to this and say that this is, this is not disinformation, this hearing today. This is getting information we have to take a look at to restore confidence in our election integrity. We, we're not going to be able to just move on without bringing up these irregularities, examining them, and providing an explanation and see where there really are problems so we can correct it moving forward. Senator Paul. Mr. Mr. Chairman, i got to respond to that. I mean, you're saying I'm putting out Try. information. Well, one, I did, had nothing to do with this report. You, you lied repeatedly. I did not you lied this. repeatedly in the press that I was spreading Russian, dis, Russian disinformation, and that was an outright lie, and I told you to stop lying, and you continue to do it. Mr. Chairman, this is not about airing Mr. grievances. Chairman. I, know what, I don't know what rabbit hole you're running down. You right talked now. about you Russian disinformation. Senator Paul. This is simply not what we're Senator dealing Paul. with. But, but Mr. Chairman, you can't make Judge these false Starr. allegations and then dropping it there. Not false that allegations. That is why this Senator Paul. needs to return back Good to star, a Senator Paul. partisan thing. This is, this, is, this is terrible what you're doing to this committee and all the great work that you talked about. It is what you have done to this committee. It is not Falsely accusing the, the chairman of spreading disinformation. He's exactly right, and I'm glad Ron Johnson suspended some of the uh, f- false politeness of Senate protocol to not allow Gary Peters to get away with his phony baloney moral indignation. The hell with him. The record is clear. It's easy, easily established, too, what Peters and other de- Democrats on that committee and the Democrat socialists, generally speaking, were engaged in for the better part of the last four years. So go pound it, Peters, essentially, is what Johnson said. And it was, uh, frankly, long overdue. Uh, to some of the uh, substantive, uh, the other substantive issues there, including setting the record straight with Peters and his ilk, uh, Ram Paul made an important point with respect to Christopher Krebs. He was one of those who testified, of course, the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, who became a cause celeb, 60 Minutes interview, and so on and so forth, because he disputed the notion that it was not a secure election, and he was summarily dismissed by President Trump, and anybody dismissed by President Trump is uh, going to have some newfound fans on the left. But Ram Paul made an important point uh, during his time with Krebs uh, while he was testifying. Krebs was in his lane. This whole, this was the most secure election ever business has been expanded by Democrats to be applicable to areas of the election administration to which it is not applicable. And that was Rand Paul's. And the only last comment I would say on what Mr. Krebs, and he can speak for himself, but I think his job was keeping the foreigners out of the election. It was the most secure election based on security of the internet and technology. 
But he never has voiced an opinion. He's welcome to today on whether or not dead people voted. I don't think he examined that. Did he examine non-citizens voting? So to say it was the safest election, sure, I agree with your statement if you're referring to foreign intervention. But if you're saying it's the safest election based on no dead people voted, no non-citizens voted, no people broke the absentee rules, I think that's false. And I think that's what's upset a lot of people on our side is that they're taking your statement to mean, oh, well, there was no problem in the elections. I don't think you examined any of the problems that we've heard here. So really, you're just referring to something differently is what I, the way I look at it. Right. And oh, by the way, Krebs agreed with that statement, testifying before the committee. I'm quoting him. Despite some claims, this statement, his opening statement, does not address voter fraud, which is not within this group's ambit. Instead, the statement focuses on manipulation or hacking of their machines supporting elections, foreign interference, the uh, hardware and software, but not these other issues as Rand Paul was delineating. And, you know, raising these questions generates activity that at least provides some impetus for accountability. So, for example, you have uh, Secretary of State in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, much besieged as he is, announcing this week that he is doing an audit of recent absentee ballots in Cobb County, doing a signature check on them. Now that the signature matching has been attacked again and again with no evidence, he's defensive, but nonetheless, he said, I feel we need to take steps to restore confidence in our elections. And so, fine, you know, you can be defensive all you want, at least if you're going through the process. Now we're getting somewhere. And you know what? If it comes back and uh, you can provide the evidence that everything checks out, well, then good. That's sort of the point, isn't it? The point is to say you should be enthusiastic about taking up questions that raise concerns and say, no, look, look, we, I, we hear what you're saying. We want to make sure you have as much confidence as we do. So here you go. Here's what we did. Here's the evidentiary support. Maybe there are reasonable explanations, for example, why there was such a low spoilage rate of absentee ballots despite exponentially more absentee ballots this cycle than in previous cycles than is sort of normally the case in, in, in many jurisdictions, at least one standard deviation. Now, that also occurred in places where Trump was victorious, like Florida. So the uh, ballot drop boxes and maybe the more, more focus and education on properly filling out the absentee ballots, changes in state laws, including in Georgia, that allowed voters to cure their absentee ballots if an error was made. Okay, maybe that does explain some of it. It doesn't explain all of it, uh, much of it which was raised in the hearing again yesterday with respect to people who were illegitimate in their vote or their designation of being able to vote absentee, as was the case of in the state of Wisconsin with the indefinitely confined designation. But uh, the more you can tackle some of the statistical anomalies raised and the assertions of election irregularities, if not outright fraud made, including an affidavit form, the more confidence people will have in you and by extension our elections. And that's the ultimate good, isn't it? This is Dan Price. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, moving from accountability with respect to our elections to accountability with respect to COVID policy. 
Tony Fauci telling the Washington Post, Amazon Post, this week, I'm going to be with my wife, period. The Christmas holiday is a special holiday for us because Christmas Eve is my birthday and Christmas Day is Christmas Day. I'm surprised Christmas Day isn't his birthday, being the Christ child as far as he's covered by the D.C. press corps. But he went on to say, my daughters are not going to come home. That's painful. We don't like that. But that's just one of the things you're going to have to accept as we go through this unprecedented, challenging time. A good piece, um, I don't know what to, whether or not you're aiding and abetting uh, Tony Fauci's uh, no Christmas family time admonition, but there's a good piece by our friend Don Boudreau from the Mercatus Center, George Mason University, about tyranny. And uh, just something to keep in mind, because he's got it exactly right in terms of the historical perspective. How does tyranny arrive and survive? It arrives and survives always with the acceptance and often with the enthusiastic approval of large numbers of its victims. These victims thus do not sense that they are living under tyranny. Tyranny is what happens to other people, to people less enlightened and much less fortunate than us, to people whose oppressors, unlike our own familiar leaders, rant crazily in foreign tongues, often while dressed in military costumes, you know, the epaulets and all that, the funny uh, costumes, right? It doesn't happen to us because it's not really tyranny if its stated goal is our salvation. They're not subjugating us. They're trying to protect us. Well, of course, uh, that's how it plays out in every tyrannical society or tyrannical regime that imposes uh, totalitarianism on its countrymen. The um, people submit. If they didn't submit, you could never have a tyrant assume that sort of control. It's just something worth noting because... It's a question of whether or not there's still the capacity for accountability with respect to policymakers. And uh, this brings me to a piece by our friend Jeffrey Tucker over at the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, his uh, most excellent piece, The Decimal Point That Blew Up the World. He builds off a recent paper uh, made public in a uh, journal called the Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness, which is a real page turner. I encourage a subscription. Uh, this from Ronald Brown of Waterloo University. It uh, also appears on the website of the National Institutes of Health with the date of August 12th, by the way. The thesis of Professor Brown's paper, that a wild overreaction and unprecedented lockdowns began with what was a terminological mix-up that led to a misplacement of a decimal point in a report from the NIH. There's one little decimal point. This traces back to Tony Fauci's testimony on the Hill on March 11th of this year, in which he conflated infection fatality rate with case fatality rate. Don't want to get too technical here, but this is important. What he did in conflating those two metrics is make an apples to oranges comparison between COVID and the seasonal flu. The top line being COVID is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu, which is all that the press corps took away from that testimony. And then they ran with it to suggest that this was the basis for for all of the unprecedented policies that ensued. Fauci's testimony. SARS was also a coronavirus in 2002. It infected 8,000 people and it killed about 775. It had a mortality of about 9 to 10%. So that's only 8,000 people. In about a year, in the two and a half months that we've had this coronavirus, as you know, we now have multiple multiples of that. So it clearly is not as lethal, and I'll get to the lethality in a moment, but it certainly spreads better. Probably for the practical understanding of the American people, the seasonal flu that we deal with every year has a mortality of 0.1%. The stated mortality overall 
of this, when you look at all the data, including China, is about 3%. It first started off as 2 and now 3 I think if you count all the cases of minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, that probably brings the mortality rate down to somewhere around 1%, which means it is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. I think that's something that people can get their arms around and understand. But less lethal than, than N1H1? No, absolutely not. H1N1 is even, the 2009 pandemic of H1N1 was even less lethal than the, than the regular seasonal flu. It was a yeah, pandemic. I, I'm trying to help the American people know where to appropriately set their gauge. I think they set the gauge is that this is a really serious problem that we have to take seriously. I mean, people always say, well, the flu, you know, the flu does this, the flu does that. The flu has a mortality of 0.1%. Sure. This has a mortality of 10 times that. Okay. And that's the reason why I want to emphasize we have to stay ahead of the game in preventing this. Going to Professor Brown's paper, sampling bias in coronavirus mortality calculations led to a tenfold increased mortality overestimation in that testimony you just heard. This bias most likely followed from information bias due to misclassifying a seasonal influenza IFR, infection fatality rate, as a CFR, case fatality rate. The infection fatality rate is drawn from samples across the population, including undiagnosed as well as asymptomatic and mild infections. So the infection fatality rate is a bigger denominator than the case fatality rate. The results of the, the results of the infection fatality rate are inclusive of cases, what we used to call sick people, but extend to people who merely carry traces of the dead virus but are in no substantial base, uh, danger of passing it onward or experiencing severe outcomes. So when you compare IFR to CFR, you're comparing apples to oranges. Evident, going back to Brown's paper, evidence from the World Health Organization confirmed that the approximate case fatality rate of the coronavirus is generally no higher than that of the seasonal influenza. By early May of 20, mortality levels from COVID-19 were considerably below predicted overestimations, a result that the public attributed to successful mitigating measures to contain the spread of the novel coronavirus. The CFR case fatality rate measures severity. The infection fatality rate measures prevalence. What Tony Fauci did was conflate the two. What matters here, as uh, Jeffrey Tucker writes, is not the prediction as such, but the switching of the word infection with case. The flu has a case fatality rate of 0.1%. That was incorrect even at the time of writing. You can call it a misprint or sloppy or downright duplicitous. The WHO identified the 0.1% figure as the flu's infection fatality rate. He called it the case fatality rate. But his CFR claim about the flu is precisely what led him to claim in front of that committee that COVID would be deadly in ways that defy all experience of this generation. And so the question is, I mean, in addition to what we know about the survival rate, and to sum it up, John Ioannidis, the epidemiologist from Stanford, the infection fatality rate for people under the age of 70 is 0.05%, five one-hundredths of a percent. That conclusion has been peer-reviewed and published by the WHO. How does this compare with the flu? Apples to apples? We don't know, and neither does Tony Fauci, and he didn't then. There's no data on age-specific infection fatality rate on the seasonal flu. What that means is Fauci's testimony, in which he casually predicted based on bad numbers COVID would be 10 times worse than the flu, can either be confirmed or denied based on age-specific severe outcomes. And what we do know, 70, under the age of 70.05% is the infection fatality rate. And what we know is that we... You know, open this Pandora's box of lockdown and bust policies 
and all the associated unintended consequences based on an apples to oranges comparison by the you know leading infectious disease expert in America in the West who were supposed to take uh, whose word we're supposed to take as received wisdom unquestionably it's just remarkable isn't it we'll continue our COVID discussion with best-selling author Lionel Shriver right up Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Continuing our discussion of uh, all things COVID-related, even the good news seems to accompany beyond bad news, sort of Kafkaesque absurd news. So the good news yesterday is that Abbott received emergency use authorization from the FDA to use their true $5 paper strip rapid antigen test at home, which was described by Harvard epidemiologist Michael Mina as a massive step forward to getting true, rapid, accessible, frequent paper strip tests into the household. There is a catch that $5 test is actually going to cost you an additional $25 because it requires a prescription for a digital MD service to have someone watch you use it. An example of taking a simple cheap test and making it more difficult and less accessible, which is sort of what government is wants to do. Nonetheless, he uh, tweets, so it's a tremendous step forward at least to show that these tests can be used safely in the home and should be viewed as a gateway test in uh, it will help open the door for many more. It, uh, if you're contagious, these tests can find you. So that's the good news. The absurd news on the testing front comes out of Austria, where a member of the Austrian parliament demonstrated the defectiveness of his government's COVID-19 tests by testing a can of Coca-Cola. Not kidding. Brought a glass of cola to the podium when he was speaking before parliament. He took drops to use on an antigen rapid test being used on a mass scale in Austria. After going to the lectern, starting his speech, sprinkling the rapid test with a few drops of cola, three minutes later, the test showed the result. It was positive. So Coca-Cola can be a super spreader if it gets infected or it is infected and it is a super spreader. I don't know. The point he made was we're wasting untold taxpayer resources on tests that are something less than perfectly accurate based on his little Penn and Teller demonstration. For more on uh, the upsides and downsides of COVID-related developments, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Lionel Shriver, best-selling author, contributor to The Spectator. Uh, she is the best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was optioned into a very successful movie. And more recently, The Motion of the Body Through Space. Lionel Shriver, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. You're sort of like me, as you wrote uh, in The Spectator about uh, the need for a dose of vaccine real. You know, everybody likes to tout this um, unalloyed good that has come to pass, and you look for the downside immediately, sort of like I do. So what is the, the realism with respect to vaccine you're suggesting we need? We are possibly even talking about vaccinating the entire world. That's almost 8 billion people. And even if you just want to keep it to the Western world, it's a fantastic logistical exercise. And I think we need to be realistic about how long it's going to take. And the reason we have to be realistic is that we cannot keep suffocating the entire society and the entire economy and our lives 
until everybody has had their shot. The cumulative damage that we're going to do to ourselves if we're holding our breaths like that are going to make us collectively turn blue. Right. And, and I mean, look, even, you know, even the rollout is uh, in, in the states is, um, you know, per, perhaps already this week, not proceeding with the speed anticipated. New York Post reporting yesterday, well, you know, only 4000 of the 80,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine that made its way to New York State have been actually used at this point. So it's sort of like saying, you know, what's the holdup that's been delivered to hospitals like get get to get busy already. And I'm not you know, raising any real alarm about this. But I'm just saying, you know, we have this idea that once um, money is allocated, then it magically does what it was advertised to do. Once a vaccine has been developed, then it just magically does what the policymakers and the politicians say will occur. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that happens from the input to the desired output. We're dealing with wishful thinking on a massive scale. And by the way, the same thing is happening over in the UK, where I am speaking to you from. You know, it was announced that uh, they would be inoculating, quote, millions of people by Christmas. They've used about 140,000 doses. (laughs) And I don't think they're going to make the 25th with that millions. In fact, at this rate, they'll be lucky to inoculate 400,000 people by Christmas. I mean, that's still an achievement. I mean, this is where I wouldn't be a complete downer, but we can't be unreasonable. But most importantly, being reasonable also means continuing to look at the larger effects of these economically suppressive measures on the rest of our lives and our physical health as well as our economic health. It's credibly going to take at least a year to get a substantial sector of the population uh, vaccinated. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, pick up on that point and, and get a sense from your perspective of how many of uh, uh, your uh, fellow uh, UK denizens uh, agree with you on that, are starting to come to that recognition because it seems to be uh, increasing in the states. Lionel Shriver, contributor to The Spectator, best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, and most recently, The Motion of the Body Through Space. We'll be right back. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Lionel Shriver. She is a contributor to The Spectator. She's also the best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin and, most recently, The Motion of the Body Through Space. And, um, Lionel, I don't know if you uh, share this frustration, but uh, it just doesn't seem like you can get uh, much of a straight answer, honest answer, from uh, the politicians and, and, frankly, a lot of the policymakers in the public health and and medical fields it seems like they always have to color it with a bit of hyperbole or hysteria. And I know, you know, we're trying to scare you straight or some like excuse like that. But for example, since Thanksgiving, the narrative in the States has been the hospital systems are being overwhelmed. And, um, and yes, we have seen this uh, increase in cases. We've also made many advances over the last 10 months with therapeutics, not to mention the vaccines now coming online so that the, uh, uh, case fatality rates are much better. Uh, but 
the just on the hospital piece of it, just in terms of like being honest, uh, this from tweeted out by Andrew Bostrom, who's a assistant uh, professor of medicine at Brown University. The estimated national hospital utilization in America, about 74% of inpatient hospital beds are occupied at present. 15% are occupied by COVID patients. Of all ICU beds in the country, about 64% are occupied now. Well, well, that's just um, not the basis to suggest that the system is being overwhelmed, particularly as in some states, some of that... uh, uh, th- those projections around Thanksgiving gatherings we're now on the other side of, and now we're getting the same warnings about Christmas gatherings that we got about Thanksgiving gatherings with the same dire predictions that really didn't come to pass with respect to overwhelming the system, which was sort of the predicate for some of these lockdown policies and other restrictions at the outset in the spring. It, it just doesn't seem like uh, you- we're being leveled with, in in my view. I agree. I think a lot of the statistics are being fiddled and often uh, one way of fiddling it with the statistics is to not put them in context. Um, for example, uh, you're fed uh, in the UK all these terrifying numbers about how close to capacity the hospitals are, m- much like the statistics you just quoted it for the US. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have lower hospital occupancy this autumn than last autumn. I mean, but nobody ever mentions that. So a lot of a lot of the confusion of the public is due to the fact that they are not given the additional information that would put what's happening in, in perspective. Right, and and there's you know it's one of two things, and neither one of them are good. Either you think I'm uh, too dumb to be reasoned with, and that's why you're going to scare me, or. You want to scare me because you have uh, really an ulterior motive uh, that is just that is beyond the stated motive of you know my salvation, which is what you're essentially selling. Well, yes, we we now have a perverse incentive all over the world for governments and uh, related uh, medical institutions to play this crisis up as even worse than it is. And I'm not saying that it's not a crisis. Um, or, or, or that the disease is not real, but uh, the fact is that governments, in overreacting, uh, have done such colossal damage um, to their economies, um, to their their own bottom lines, to people's personal lives, to the health of people who dare to get sick with something other than COVID. Um, that they they have a vested interest in in it being an utterly unprecedented cataclysm, and it must be played up as as awful as possible. And and, it, and it's sort um, it's sort of like the oh, I don't sorry, see how we get out of this either because yeah. the damage yeah. done is so that's what's unprecedented. The disease is not unprecedented. We've had pandemics before. They killed millions of people worldwide. We still got on with life. This time we didn't do it. But the cost of the overreaction is so fantastic that nobody's going to be able to own up to the mistake. Who could take responsibility for that much destruction? See that, that, So that, they're that, going to keep defending that, yeah. it, and that also means, alas, that they're going to keep doing it, and they're going to keep locking down, 
And if there's another pandemic comes around, they're going to do the same thing. And that's what I've become more disturbed by as a prospect than just about anything else. This new protocol whereby we have a disease, maybe it's just a bad flu season, uh, that, oh, you know, our hospitals are overwhelmed, everything closes, everyone stay home. It's the new way we do things. And it's simply not viable. Well, and, and I think I mean, that's you're pointing the end of to, civilization. Yeah, and I think you're pointing to something that's uh, really important about human nature. I mean, it's essentially the, 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 the gambling addict. I keep making bigger and bigger bets. I keep losing, so I make bigger bets until uh, there's a real moment. Yeah, it's a and, classic doubling down. Right, and, and or, but, but here, or as I like to put it, as I like to put it, the best way to cover up a mistake is to keep making it. Right, but exactly, but uh, which is a good way to put it. But but the problem here is at least uh, for the so, so far, the punishment has not been uh, leveled on the the gambling addict. It's been leveled on everyone around the gambling addict. So so Trump loses uh, in part because they're able to demagogue him as not having enough of a serious response. He didn't uh, mau mau non mask wearers. He didn't promote lockdowns vociferously enough. But the, the politicians who are the lockdowners have no so far. There's not been really any examples of them suffering a political consequence. And so now I'm addicted to the profile I have. I'm addicted to the power I have. And even if the policy isn't working, well, I'm still going to act in furtherance of my profile and my power. Well, and also one of the hangovers from this event is going to be that we have transferred powers to government that. It's not want to get going to give back. Mm-hmm. Um, we have allowed such an abridgment of our civil liberties that we have exposed those liberties as uh, conditional and optional. So they may be removed at will. It actually makes a complete farce of the Constitution. She is Lionel Shriver. She is the best-selling author and contributor to The Spectator. Lionel, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate your insights. I always like talking to you. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and everybody all aboard, we're going to the fictional neighborhood of make-believe. All right, Charlie, neighborhood of make-believe. Ding dong, ding dong. We're going to go see King Friday and a Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Mannequin Pete, that's a... Uh, men's store mannequin out of Mishawaka from the Mishawaka Macy's is what I I believe to be the case. He has uh, been nominated to be Joe Biden's secretary of transportation. Uh, And he uh, took to uh, the dais to introduce himself uh, to the nation and present his transportation chops. Meow, meow, meow. I've also had a personal love of transportation ever since childhood. More than once as a college student, 
I would convince a friend to travel nearly a thousand miles back to Indiana with me on Amtrak. Though I know that in this administration, I will at best aspire to be the second biggest uh, train enthusiast around. I spent a spring break in graduate school aboard a cargo ship studying there. <laughs> Travel in my mind is synonymous with growth, with adventure, even love, so much so that I proposed to my husband Chaston in an airport terminal. So don't let anybody tell you that O'Hare isn't romantic. Yeah, I think I saw that movie, Tom Hanks, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Which were you? Uh, right. So I, I, I've been on a train. I was on a cargo ship and I proposed to my husband at O'Hare Airport. Boy, uh, enough said. I, I mean, and, and of course, uh, you know, as the mayor of South Bend, a town of 100,000 people, he's tackled all of the complicated uh, major uh, infrastructure and transportation problems that uh, – the world's most powerful country, the world's leading economy will tackle. I mean, he gets all of the logistics of doing complicated things like this. I faced a constant battle with that natural enemy of all mayors, the pothole. Oh, good grief. I, I mean, is there any more evidence that you need that we're living in a Shakespearean comedy? Uh, all we need is uh, a puck, I guess, at this point, although uh, Mannequin Pete could probably play that role as well don't you find it don't you find it a little bit insulting disrespectful that's how identitarian politics works when you nominate people or you put people in positions who are so wildly unqualified that it is you know of the quality of a shakespearean comedy as i mentioned it's not just that it is patronizing to the beneficiary it's disrespectful of your constituents when you put it in a government setting, isn't it? I am so indifferent to this cabinet post. I am so indifferent to the work of this agency that I'll just check an identitarian box and put in there who I need to put in there. What are you saying exactly? It doesn't matter or you don't care or some combination of the two? Meow, 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 King Joe. This is Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danprofshow, including Parler. Boy, James Monroe had nothing on Joe Biden and company, huh? The era of good feelings, 21st century version, putting uh, the partisan sniping behind uh, those uh, sincere calls for unity and great ambassadors for the left in 2020 America, like Georgia Democrat Senate candidate, uh, the good reverend, the pro-choice reverend, Ralph Warnock. While others were sleeping, members of the United States Senate declared war and launched a vicious and evil attack on the most vulnerable people in America. Herod is on the loose. Herod is a cynical politician who's willing to kill children and kill the children's health program in order to preserve his own wealth and his own power. Hope is in the air, but Herod is on the loose. 
the hopes and the fears of all the years have met in thee tonight. And so on Friday night, the United States Senate decided by a slim majority to pick the pockets of the poor, the sick, the old, and the yet unborn in order to line the pockets of the ultra-rich. Don't tell me about gangsters and thugs on the streets. There are more gangsters and thugs in Washington, D.C., in the Capitol than there are. Yeah, that was the good reverend uh, back in 2017 on the occasion of Senate passing the Trump tax cuts. So uh, just so you understand, passing tax cuts is killing children, but advocating for the actual killing of children, as Reverend Warnock does, is not killing children. You got that? This, uh, among many of his pronouncements, uh, anybody who voted for tax cuts is a veritable King Herod murdering children to get to the Christ child. That's the biblical comparison from this uh, very unbiblical pastor running for Senate in Georgia. And then there's Jen O'Malley Dixon's characterization of Republicans in a Glamour magazine interview calling them frackers, except that's not exactly the term she used. For more on uh, all of this in advance of, uh, well, perhaps, uh, well, definitely a watershed moment in American political history and for the next uh, two years, the January 5th Georgia Senate runoffs. Pleased to be joined again by Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion. Roger, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I have to confess that my subscription to Glamour lapsed some time ago, so I may not be well well-informed. I'll tell you what, sir. Christmas is right. Christmas is right around the corner, and I'm going to gift you a subscription. I was once a commissioner to write a piece for Vogue magazine many years ago. Those were the Anna Winter years in Roger Kimball's career, as I recall them. Right, Roger? Yeah, uh, I never. Uh, the, 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 they never. Uh, they never published the piece on that. An accolade that I have yet to add to my quiver as a. There, there's no reason for that to be the case, actually, Roger, man of letters such as yourself. There's a ready-made piece to be written for uh, Vogue, and that is a review of Hunter Biden's forthcoming art edition. <laughs> so there you go. You can check did, that box. I did, I did see that. I was, I was, my quota for absurdity was full up yesterday, so I decided to put that on the docket for today. Yeah, All right, well, let's so, yeah. refill that bucket of absurdity and talk a little bit about uh, Raphael Warnock and that Georgia Senate runoff. I mean, yeah. the extremism piece of it set aside, the incredible things that he has said over the years and continues to say, notwithstanding, what does it say about where we're at that someone as intolerant and hateful and extreme as Raphael Warnock could be in a statistical dead heat for a Senate seat in Georgia? Yeah, well, it doesn't say anything good, does it? Just listening to him pontificate. He's a demagogue right out of the pages of the 20th century and the, some of the bad moments thereof. He, um, this call for unity and so on, it reminded me a little bit of uh, passage in 1984 when Winston is sitting in his uh, apartment and Orwell introduces the little telescreen. And from the telescreen comes words like unity, love, mm-hmm. patriotism, so on. And it sounded exactly like a tweet that was emitted by Camilla Harris a week or two ago. Exactly the same words. It was remarkable. And of course, what we're seeing now is the blatant issuance of a contradiction. They call for unity, even as their policies are incredibly divisive 
and destructive. The person who said, well, I can't remember whether it was Mencken or P.T. Barnum, that no one ever went broke by underestimating the stupidity of the American public. This is a test of that. We, we are at an important crossroads in this country. You know, I, I fear to be, not to be melodramatic about it, but I fear that the last free and fair election was 2016. This election, in, in, in my view, was rigged. The rigging was successful. They managed to steal the election by stealing votes in five or six cities across the country. And I find it amazing to watch even people on the Republican side acceding to this theft, saying, well, it was an election, the people spoke. This is not true. This was a totally manufactured election. And the big thing were the uh, absentee ballots, usually at about you know five or six percent of the vote. This time it was sixty percent. This uh, under the cover of COVID, this was an invitation to ballot stuffing. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of ballots were prepared before the election, and you didn't request them; they just sent these ballots out. So it's just a positive invitation to ballot stuffing. And across the country, why was it that? At almost the exact same moment, in five or six cities, the counting stopped. Why was that? And then it starts up again, and there are these gigantic spikes for Joe Biden. How is that? Statistically, it is not only anomalous, it is impossible. And then, of course, there are the voting machines. You know, I, I don't think we've gotten the, the final uh, word on these, these Dominion voting machines, which do have a, a, you know, a Chinese component and so on. It sounds paranoid. It sounds like something out of a, a thriller novel. But um, as Delmore Schwartz once said, even paranoids have enemies. It seems to me that that this election is allowed to, you know, if we just say, well, we'll just we'll, we'll live with it. It's the process. This will have been the last election. That's you know, the country lasted for a long time, 233 years. It's a pretty good run. But uh, it's time it, to wrap it, it up. Having, or, or we're yeah, gonna, <laughs> that's a wrap. Having, having, having been done uh, once, it will be done again and again. And of course, should. Mr. Warnock and his uh, fellow Democrat be elected in Georgia. That will really be it, because then the Democrats for at least two years will have all three branches of government. We will see the court will be packed, you know, will not nine justices, but 13 or 25 or who knows. It, uh, statehood from, for D.C. and so on is on, on the docket. You know, we'll, it's, it will be a long list of prescriptions that will thrill the Chinese and uh, will definitely harm the people of the United States. Uh, assuming something uh, of a game-changing variety does not occur between now and Jan 6th and between now and yes. Jan 20th, what would your advice and counsel to President Trump be going forward into 2021 and uh, the 2022 cycle, which starts right away, and mm-hmm. 2024? What, what, how should he position himself if he wants to maintain relevance and influence in the the policy discussion within Republican ranks at minimum? Well, I think, you know, the, he has a, a very compelling agenda. The Make American Great agenda is a great agenda. And he was able to do an extraordinary amount in, in four years. Uh, you know, I, I needn't rehearse it. It's everybody uh, who's paying attention understands what incredible accomplishments he, he made. And I think that that is a, an agenda that resonates with a huge part of the population. I mean, you know, 74 million people voted for him. It's, Extraordinary. I, I think he wants to <clears throat> keep 
being the apostle of that agenda. He wants to do what he can to keep it alive. And it will be, a, you know, obviously it will be a resistance uh, movement. Uh, should he run in 2024? I don't know. He will be, you know, his old <laughs> Joe Biden then. Uh, I, I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's another uh, for another day. But um, certainly uh, it, it would be of the first order of business to retake the House in 2022, which I think is, I think most observers think that's quite likely. And um, let's hope to expand the, uh, the Republican uh, uh, majority in the Senate if we manage to hold on to it in, in, in January. You know, one thing I regret to say that I think that Mr. Warnock might have been right about is the level of corruption in government. That's, uh, it's hard for us to take that on board. We'd like to think of our public servants as being just that, public servants. Unfortunately, many, many are not. And it's not just on the Democratic side. Uh, which is something that's a little hard to absorb, but I think it's true. But let's just start with uh, on, uh, on, on, on the Democratic side and talk about Eric Swalwell. How can how can a man who has been compromised by an intimate relation with a Chinese spy be on the House Intel Committee? How is that possible? Uh, it's just extraordinary. Roger Kimball, editor of the New Criterion and uh, perhaps forthcoming uh, contributor to Vogue magazine. We'll see. Roger Kimball, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Bye, guys. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Continuing uh, off our conversation with Roger Kimball from New Criterion to reflect back on the accomplishments of the last four years and also think prospectively about the potential landscape ahead. Want to do so on the life issue, and to help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Abby Johnson of And Then There Were None, the uh, author of Unplanned that was optioned into that very successful movie uh, over the last uh, year and a half or so, uh, her life story going from a Planned Parenthood mill director to one of the leading pro-life activists in the country. And uh, Mike Pence, uh, vice president, delivered remarks at a Life is Winning event yesterday where he highlighted some of those accomplishments the Trump administration has achieved in the direction of perseverance of the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. Many of the leading lights of the pro-life movement were there. Our friend Marjorie Dannenfelser, Susan B. Anthony List, David Daleiden, Center for Medical Progress, and the aforesaid Abby Johnson. Abby, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me on. So uh, tell us about that event yesterday and, uh, you know, some of the takeaways you're uh, – your perspective on the last four years of the Trump administration as it pertains to uh, the life agenda. Yeah. I mean, gosh, we've had a very um, you know, successful past uh, four years. Um, we've had some, you know, defunding uh, efforts, of course, defunding uh, the abortion industry of title 10 funding. Um, of course, Mexico city policy, uh, removing, uh, global funding uh, for abortion and, 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 you know, not just removing, and this is one thing they talked about a lot yesterday, was not just removing uh, the abortion funding and then saying, okay, well, you know, now you have no health care, um, but then setting them up 
with programs to ensure that women had um, health care available to them that just didn't involve killing their children. Um, so that was a, that's an important part of, of what uh, the Trump administration has done. You sort of juxtapose that against Canada, who's funneling, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars into the global expansion uh, of abortion across the country and, and you look at what, what the Trump administration has done uh, to really pull back funding. Put like type, type, Title 10 funding you're talking about, for example. No, I'm talking about, I'm talking oh, the about Mex- international funds. A Mexico City policy. Mexico City policy, yeah. Gotcha. Um, you know, we look at, uh, he talks a lot about conscience protections. They talked about um, actually two sort of breaking news had not not previously been announced. They announced it there um, at that conference. Um, uh, two lawsuits that, that they were filing, one against a, a, a hospital in Vermont um, and, you know, it's forcing a religious objector, a, a nurse who was a, a conscientious objector, uh, based on, on religious objections. They basically forced her to participate in an elective abortion. Um, and the doctor, they even, they, they tricked her basically into going into the operating room, uh, under false pretenses, telling her it wasn't an abortion. It was an elective abortion. And the doctor said to her, um, (laughs) after they tricked her in there into the operating room said, I hope you don't hate me after this. Hmm. Um, so the, uh, health and human services department is suing that Vermont hospital. And then they also announced that they're, uh, basically suing the state of California uh, for forcing uh, California taxpayers to fund abortion under insurance plans, um, saying that that is, uh, you know, violating uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of Californians who object to paying for abortion through their insurance plans. Um, so lots of great strides have been have been made under uh, that's just you know a few but many many great strides for life have been made um, under the under the Trump administration and um, and, and, he's got and a lot per- of you know he's had a lot of great people on his team. Yeah, I was just about to go there the the people personnel as policy right and uh, not just on right. the. Uh, not just on the executive branch side, but with respect to judicial appointments, uh, most notably on the high sure. court, uh, couldn't ask for more. Exactly. I mean, they've appointed, I think, right at 260 judicial appointments. And then, of course, uh, three justices to the Supreme Court. So, you know, and it's not just about, you know, being a, a conservative judge, per se, but really being a, a constitutionalist. You know, that's what this administration uh, has done. That's who they have appointed. And, and that matters to people who uh, value freedom, to people who, who value uh, liberty in the Constitution. Oh, so thinking about uh, the landscape and a potential Biden administration, even if Republicans are successful in Georgia and maintain control of the Senate, you know, where does the pro-life movement go, both sort of nationally and I know well, really nationally, because obviously every state presents a little bit of a different landscape. But but federally, what's what's the approach when you're going to have uh, people as hostile to pro-lifers as Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House, potentially? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the the, the potential can look grim. Um, right. Uh, federally, uh, of course, we're we're looking at, uh, you know, all of the funding that has been taken away from Planned Parenthood and, and other abortion ent- entities. Of course, that, you know, that will, of course, be reinstated. Um, that money will, will flow right back 
into right. into these abortion clinics. Uh, abortion into season and and probably even at a greater speed. Is there is there the opportunity? New avenues of funding even opened up. Well, probably, but I, I suppose you know you you go where you have at least a, a a fair shot, and it seems to me that would be the federal courts, right? And so you're looking for sure. cases that are maturing in various aspects of abortion related policy, and frankly, euthanasia related policy that perhaps you can challenge in in courts of law, and that maybe. Uh, over the next uh, term or two, mature to the to, to the high court level. Yeah, and I mean, right now, what what we what I have been told is that you know there's uh, no less than about 50 pieces of legislation uh, that could be potentially picked up by the Supreme Court to challenge Roe um, that are sitting there currently. So. Mm-hmm. We're, I mean, it could it could be at any time. I mean, the Supreme Court could. It, it's just about getting the right case right in right. front of them, because it can't be any case. It has to be the right case. It, it's not just about saying abortion's bad, right? No, or right. abortion is wrong. You're you're challenging a, a, a precedent, right? You're challenging Roe. You're challenging Doe. So it has to be the right case. You're having to look at look at the legal precedent and say this is this is this is good enough to be overturned. We have something to say that what is currently on the books can be recalled essentially. And so you have to have the right case to do that. It can't just be any case. Oh, right. And as we've seen play out in, in uh, a number of examples, including sort of some of the heartbeat legislation, particularly the Louisiana heartbeat mm-hmm. uh, law. So it, it, to, to your point, it's got to you know, be smartly figured based on the constitutional yeah. issues that it raises and, and be as on point with Roe as possible so that you could have this court led by probably in this on this instance led by justice thomas even though he's not the chief justice take it up she is she is abby johnson planned parenthood director turned pro-life advocate ceo of and then there were none and best-selling author of unplanned and if you haven't seen the movie based on the book then check that out on amazon streaming services abby thanks as always for joining us appreciate it of course thank you at the dan prop show we believe in protecting human life from conception to natural death this interview is brought to you by lifequotes.com exposing political fakers fixers and takers he's dan proft and this is the dan proft show Welcome back to the show, and we're pleased now to be joined by Bob Woodson. He is a friend of the show, founder and president of the Woodson Center, also founder of 1776 Unites, uh, an um, alternative vision for an understanding of American history as compared to that presented by the 1619 Project. He's got a new book, does Bob Woodson, Lessons from the Least of These, The Woodson Principles, Bob Woodson, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Pleased to be here, Dan. Good, good, good talking to you. Yeah, I'm excited about your new book. And, and the place I want to start, because we spend a lot of time talking about um, groups and monoliths, on, uh, as monolithic, unfortunately. It's just sort of handles we use, but it belies um, complications, the black, white, middle income, lower income, and so on and so forth. And um, in uh, uh, your book, uh, and uh, some discussions of it that I've read, 
you uh, break down sort of three categories of people who are living in poverty, uh, which has been your life's work of trying to uplift people of all races out of poverty. And I wanted you to break that down because I think yeah, that needs to be broken down so we can have that sort of textured conversation about it that's required. Yeah, I was testifying before the Senate, and um, uh, and this came up. And, and what happens is that when people are talking about the poor, they tend to generalize as if everybody is poor for the same reason. But you can't generalize about any group, black, white, or poor, neither can you the poor. And so I've identified three categories. Uh, one, the category one are people whose character is intact. They have the right values. They're doing it the right way. But external circumstance uh, changes. The death of a breadwinner, a factory moves out of town, and they lose their job. For them, they use uh, temporary assistance the way it was intended as an ambulance service, not as a transportation system. So, hmm. so they stay on welfare for a limited period. Then they go on. Category two are people who also have good character, but they look at perverse incentives when they do receive aid. If they get a raise, they can lose the, uh, the benefits that are, they need. And so they decide to stay uh, on, on the dole. And if you just uh, re- remove the perverse incentives, they will be fine. But the, but the category three, the ones that concern most of us, because these are the people who are poor because of the, uh, a crisis in values and culture, for them, when they, they're, they're drug addicts or they're engaging in self-destructive behavior, uh, because of the, the poor attitudes or values, for them, giving the same kind of aid that you do for the first two injures them with the helping hand. And so that third category, a, 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 they must be transformed and redeemed and having that attitude change overhaul, and then opportunity works. Well, the Woodson Centers, we, we specialize in category three. <laughs> and, and so we've been successful in that. The problem is when we're debating remedies, People on the left tend to look at all poor as if they're category uh, or one. And people on the right tend to think all poor people are category three. So we miss one another when we're talking about remedies. And and so to talk about some of the principles to deal with category three, since categories one and two are sort of – as you say, they're sort of starting from the right foundation. So per, with a little bit of short-term help, they're going to get to where they need to be to be independent and successful in, on their own terms. But Category 3 presents uh, you know, all sorts of challenges. These are the people who are filling welfare roles, going to jail, um, who are of concern to most, uh, most people. That, that's the category, and we specialize in that. Our groups throughout the country have demonstrated and, and, and that how to do that. And so what I've done in this book over the course of 40 years of walking with these grassroots healing agents, I call them, um, I have learned by observing how they promote redemption and transformation in people. And, and first of all, they, they, they have the highest expectation of people. And, and they're also very transparent. They, they go up to someone who's a drug addict and say, listen, I have been where you are. Let me take you by the hand and show you the steps that I have taken to become sober. Let me take you to, to the chapel. Let me take you here. 
let me walk with you for a while. And as a consequence, um, you, they, they are enticed into a process of healing themselves. And these grassroots leaders tend not to be uh, certified professionals. They tend to be, they, as I've said in the book, they have letters in front of their names, not behind them. <laughs> something. Uh, Bob, uh, let's hold it right there. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, identitarianism, of which uh, race is just one facet. More with the Woodson Center's Bob Woodson when we return. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Bob Woodson uh, about his new book, Lessons from the Least of These, The Woodson Principles. And I want to focus on the framework that you provide for addressing individuals in poverty and, by extension, opportunity, success. Uh, how do you look at uh, the identitarian obsession that has now been scaled to probably the White House? And we see this playing out in real time with Joe Biden's cabinet selections and the arguments from different groups uh, based on race or orientation, sexual orientation, gender, uh, the arguments that are uh, occurring over how many Pacific Islanders do you have versus how many blacks versus how many Asians versus how many women versus how many LGBTQ. It is the most destructive to the interests of poor people that I can ever imagine. That's why when I set up 1776, our goal is to deracialize race and desegregate poverty. I find it interesting that white guilt has become the new source of racism and also a source of black power. Critical race theory is a fancy name for stereotyping. (laughs) Hmm. We used to call it stereotyping. You know, all blacks look alike, talk alike. Um, And and the old racists used to say, well, blacks are, are, they're shiftless, lazy, unreliable people. And uh, critical race theory says the same thing, that all blacks, all women are the same. They're they're this, and therefore, uh, they all share this in common. It's the same thing. Critical race theory is stereotyping on on steroids. And and, uh, this uh, story out of, uh, uh, well, it's it's sort of uh, not particular to to a state, but the Episcopal Diocese of Texas acknowledging that um, its first bishop in 1859 was a slaveholder, and uh, so you have these, for example, Minnesota Council of Churches cites a host of injustice from mid-19th century atrocities against Native Americans to police killings of black people. In the first-of-its-kind first truth and reparations initiative engaging 25-member denominations, what you have now is these um, ideologically left churches around the country are now pursuing what has been advocated for by leftist politicians and and. and professional agitators like Black Lives Matter, the the churches themselves are taking up the idea that they're going to take up collections for reparations, I guess, for their the black members of their churches. It is it is most insulting. I mean, it's not only that one bar owner gave all blacks twenty percent off drinks. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, but but what it also misses too is that slavery was evil, but Native Americans, the five civilized tribes, on that uh, uh, trail of tears, they took five thousand slaves with them. So somehow portraying Native American people as uh, as 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 as, 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 as the question is, and also there were blacks who owned slaves, and and so the issue was a lot more complicated than that. But 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 this whole move towards reparations is really taken on a life of its own. But that's but the people who are being injured most will be low-income people. It's kind of like a racial poverty program. The twenty-two trillion dollars that America spent over the last sixty years on poverty programs, seventy percent of it went not to the poor, but those who served the poor. Any money from reparations will not get down to those in those low-income communities. It again, it'll be a middle-class kind of entitlement program that that all of these race race grievance uh, counselors will prosper. It's it's and and this is this is what we're trying to do. The the sleeping giant in America, Dan, are the thousands and millions of low-income people who are being pimped. And they're being uh, scammed by middle class people who are conspiring with the radical white left. In fact, the radical white left has taken over the civil rights movement. They are merely pawns of the radical left. Well, that that's I saw what, some. I'm, I'm sorry. That that's what you, you say. You know, the problem is in America today is not a, a racism uh, so much as it is elitism. So, how do you break that? Is it? Um, you know, if there was, if there's a, a, a particular public policy, some have argued, including Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, more globally, that uh, essentially school choice. You have to break the government monopoly, the government school monopoly, in order to uh, break some of these uh, these cultural disparities that you're describing, like uh, like the, the you know that that are a function of elitism. But you see. But we didn't get here by having a, a policy. Black Lives Matter and critical race theory started as an exotic discussion on campus, and then it leaked into the, the mainstream of America. And so social institutions began to congeal around that false narrative. Well, I, I think like matter, what we're doing at the Woodson Center is organizing thousands of black parent, mothers who lost children to urban violence and also thousands of grassroots people. In other words, the way that you you have to confront all of these race grievances is because they derive their moral authority by being the so-called legitimate spokesperson of the poor. Well, if thousands of low-income black people stand up and say they do not represent us, in fact, what they're proposing by defunding the police is having the consequence of destroying our children. And so what we're doing at the Woodson Center is we are, uh, within a few weeks, we'll be announcing a major campaign, and, and we are partnering with these mothers and helping them to and there'll be other groups. Uh, uh, there's got to be a rebellion on the part of low-income blacks to say they're tired of being exploited by, by, by these middle-class elites who are engaging in a kind of bait-and-switch game where they use the conditions of violence and despair, unemployment, and the so-called disparities being visited upon low-income blacks, and they're using it to generate income for themselves 
that will only benefit them and not the people in whose name it's being demanded. And so yeah, it, has yeah, to, I, I, it has to be a moral brush fire, it has to burn from within. And that's what we're trying to excite yeah. now. Well, that's that's the you know the the uh, observation of Ludwig von Mises. He wants to improve conditions, must propagate a new mentality, not merely a new institution. And that seems to me is what you're attempting to do: the really heavy lifting of propagating a new mentality. Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, the new book "Lessons from the Least of These: The Woodson Principles." Pick it up, Bob. Thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. And thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Continuing on with this uh, identitarian business we were discussing in part with the great Bob Woodson. Oh, this is one of the uh, my favorite uh, annual installments from Mark Perry over at the Carpe Diem blog at the American Enterprise Institute. Mark Perry, University of Michigan econ professor, friend of the show. We've had him on many times before. The um, call for equity, equity across the board, everywhere, uh, including with respect to on-the-job fatalities, right? We want that to be representative demographically, don't we? The top 10 most dangerous jobs and the percent of uh, those industries that are the, the jobs in those industries held by men. The most dangerous occupation in the U.S. and by a wide margin. Sort of interesting. I wouldn't think of this necessarily initially if I didn't look at uh, this annual table that Mark Perry puts together, which is actually from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Commercial fishing, 145 fatalities per 100,000 workers. The next second in terms of most, the the highest incidence of uh, on-the-job fatalities, logging at 69 per 100,000. So, you know, darn near three times second place, commercial fishing, 145 fatalities per 100,000 workers. I assume many of them would be on deadliest catch crab boats. But nonetheless, that industry, commercial fishing, 99.9% male. Logging workers, number two, 98.2% male. Aircraft pilots, 62 per 100,000, 92.5% male, that industry. Roofers, 98% male. Construction trades, 96.5% male. uh, Refuse and recycling collectors, 92% male. Truck drivers, 93% male. Uh, Number 10, landscaping workers, fatality rate per 100,000 workers is 20. All workers, all occupations, the fatality rate per 100,000 workers is 3.5. So 3.5 overall, and in 10th place, landscaping workers is six time, more than six times that. And um, commercial fishing is 50 times that. All U.S. workplace uh, fatalities, 92% male, all of them. So uh, he uh, calculated uh, a uh, fatality equity day uh, last year. And uh, let's see, when does that arrive here? So last year... Uh, e- Equal pay day, you know, which the left uses to tout their phony baloney, 72 cents on the dollar, women to men. The next equal occupational fatality day as of April of 2019 is May 3rd, uh, 2030. So we got to start pushing women into these industries that have a high incidence of fatalities on the job to level it out, right? I mean, we're not forcing anybody to do anything, just like we encourage and we set policy to drive women into STEM subjects and K through 12 and in higher ed 
and into those professions, even if that's not their disposition, even if they're not so interested as compared to men in things like computer science. But hey, 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 if there's, a, if there's an inequity that needs to be corrected, well, how about correcting it on the workplace fatality too? Uh, it's an absurd thing to say, right. And it's the same logic that undergoods the absurdity of the other gender identity business, whether it's with respect to the distribution of men versus women in STEM coursework or uh, any other suggestion of this sort of systemic patriarchal oppression of women in America that's uh, elided by cherry-picked statistics. It's a bunch of nonsense. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parler. Uh, I wanted to uh, tackle a police-involved incident in Chicago as illustrative of sort of the larger problem, one of the larger problems with respect to building trust against the demagogues who malign law enforcement illegitimately, but nonetheless have a real impact on the safety of city because they pit many law-abiding residents against the police. I'm talking about the professional agitators like the BLM squads. Well, this case of Anjanette Young is two years old. It's just come to light this week because body cam footage from this raid that was done on her home by Chicago police has been released, and that's over the objection of the city of Chicago. Worth noting, the city of Chicago's law department tried to block CBS, the CBS affiliate in Chicago from airing their report, their investigation. City of Chicago, which is lorded over by that tiny identitarian triple threat. Well, here's what happened. Anjanette Young is a social worker. She had just gotten home from work, and she was undressing, and police were executing a search warrant they had obtained on her home, or at least they thought they were executing the search warrant on the proper home. The CBS investigative report detailing, uh, providing the body cam video, and then sort of unwinding what police thought versus what the truth was, the mistakes that were made. And then let's talk about how those mistakes were addressed or not addressed over the course of the last two years. So nine police officers bum rush her, her apartment and they handcuff her. And that's, you know, it's a typical melodramatic investigative reporter, but the idea that they would handcuff somebody they believe to be a subject of interest is not unusual. They obviously want to make sure that uh, the individual in the home is not going to present any threat to the police. The fact that she was naked is a problem. The fact that they were a little lethargic in getting her a covering, you know, it's a problem. It doesn't look good on the body cam video. Believe me, if you watch it, you'll, I think, come to agreement with me on the topic. But here's the thing. And Jeanette Young kept telling them they had the wrong place. Now, again, I understand, not naive, anytime a, a police uh, bum rush somebody's resident with a search warrant and they had the search warrant out and they uh, were waving it around, presenting it. They're going to say, you know, you got the wrong house, you got the wrong house. So you're not supposed to take the subject's word for it. However, she did protest and y you had to wonder if she really fit the description of this confidential informant on which they based the search warrant they obtained, a confidential informant saying there was a felon 
who had a gun and ammo and essentially posed an immediate public threat. Well, while they were ransacking her apartment looking for the gun and the weapon for which they obtained the search warrant, uh, Anjanette Young was trying to tell them they had the wrong place. And ultimately, they came to wonder if they didn't indeed have the wrong place. We count it. She says it at least 43 times. You got the wrong house! And she was right. They were in the wrong house. Our investigation uncovered police failed to do the most basic research before getting the search warrant approved. We found they simply took the word of an informant who gave them Anjanette Young's address. The informant claimed a 23-year-old man who was a known felon had a gun and ammo inside. And um, how easy was it to have gotten the right address of the guy that uh, was actually referenced by the confidential informant? So where was the target? Our investigation revealed he was awaiting trial on home confinement here at a different apartment in Anjanette. Would it have been to locate him? Easy, real easy because he was wearing a police tracking device. He was uh, next door in her apartment complex, same apartment complex, and you should have had a handle on him if you're the police department uh, because, you know, if you work with the sheriff's office, he's got a ankle bracelet on awaiting trial. So once he was identified with the address, it, it was easy enough for C- the CBS affiliate to identify who he was and where he lived, not for police. It's a problem. And, of course, because she is a black woman, the race card is immediately going to be played, as it was by her attorney. If this had been a young woman uh, in Lincoln Park by herself in her home, naked, a young white woman, let's just be frank, if the reaction would have been the same. I don't think it would have been. Uh, It is also worth pointing out that Anjanette Young is not really inclined to be anti-police, uh, in her, the interview she did with CBS affiliate, she said this. The work is warranted. They need to do the work, but they need to do it right. They can't just callously do it and leave people's lives in ruins because they got it wrong. Well, now that this has come to light, uh, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, who uh, ran as sort of a police reformer, you know, she's an Obama consent decree type uh, reformer. Uh, she, uh, of course... So this happened before she was mayor, and so she's not responsible, but here's some moral scorn to assuage your trauma. I am deeply sorry and troubled that her home was invaded and that she had to face the humiliation and trauma that she suffered. That is just not right. It simply should not have happened. Yeah, the the saber-rattling by triple threat has uh, become quite tiresome in the city. Nonetheless, it is interesting to note what Anjanette Young's reaction was to Lori Lightfoot finally weighing in on the case, now that it's become a news story. I was there when you came to my church, and you campaigned, and I was all on board for voting for you, and I did vote for you. Mm-hmm. I told my friends to vote for you. Mm, wow. I believed in you as a black woman that was running for mayor in the city of Chicago. Yes, yes. So I want you to come back to my church, yes. and I want you to respond to this. 
because that's where you asked me to vote for you. So come back and tell me and the people at my church how you're going to fix this so that this never happens again to me or anyone else. It's not okay. Yeah, and uh, uh, she's right about that. It's a a terrible mistake police made and a terrible thing that happened to her. And this uh, doesn't and all at all provide cover for Lori Lightfoot and mob appeasers like her who are anti-police. It's not what this is. Uh, pro-law enforcement, people who want to put civil society on the side opposite, side of the skirmish line opposite police are lunatics, and Lightfoot is one of them. However, the, the police are still a public institution, and they have to be accountable too. An organization of 12,000 Cops like the city of Chicago police department is going to make mistakes, uh, even egregious ones. But it's not how you handle them. And I can't get over the fact that uh, two years into this, the civilian review board that's supposed to be a, a watchdog against police abuse, combined with the FOP, combined with the civilian political authorities, combined with the legal department, for two years it's uh, drag your feet, cover your butt. And provide no remedy to the wrong that was committed against Anjanette Young. And that that results in the loss of credibility by police and by the civilian political authorities among law-abiding Chicagoans like Anjanette Young. And this plays itself out in cities across America. You shouldn't need an investigative reporter. You shouldn't need some uh, race-hustling plaintiff's attorney to be... For those who knew what happened, to notify others who need to know what happened, and for those individuals to come forward and say, this thing happened. We want to proactively alert the public. We made an egregious error. Uh, We wronged this woman, and we are going to take the steps to do the best we can to provide a remedy You know that's available to – make up for this wrong that we committed, this transgression against this woman that we are responsible for. I mean, does that happen anywhere? I know it as a Chicagoan. It doesn't happen in Chicago politics. It doesn't happen in Illinois politics. Across party lines, across all the institutions. And that, more than anything, drives cynicism about government and about politicians. The inability to acknowledge the obvious. I did something wrong. Something wrong happened on my watch. And we're accountable to you. And we're going to take the steps proactively to redress the legitimate grievance you have rather than have to be some protracted fight that uh, really marginalizes, diminishes the the wrong that was committed while at the same time exacerbating it and causes you uh, even more heartache, unnecessary heartache, unfair heartache than was already inflicted upon you. It's just it's such a sad commentary on the lack of accountability at every level of government. And Chicago is just a microcosm of what's happened at the federal level and, frankly, probably a metaphor for what's happened and happens in a lot of big cities around America. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show china has been uh 
continues to be the hot national security topic for all kinds of reasons, not just related to uh, Eric Swalwell's girlfriend, but also uh, as people pour over that uh, data dump earlier in the week of some two to three million members of the Chinese Communist Party in good standing that were Chinese assets around the world, including in America, getting a sense of just exactly how embedded Chinese operatives are engaged in both industrial espionage and intellectual property piracy, but also, of course, with respect to politicians, compromising American politicians, both at the local as well as federal level. For more on this topic and all things related to the Chinese communist threat, we're pleased to be joined by Dana Chang, senior editor of China News for the Epoch Times. Dana, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. So this is a data leak that apparently was uh, being uh, was actionable for Hong Kong dissidents for some time before it made its way to the West and was uh, reported by uh, Sky News in Australia earlier in the week. How much faith should we place in the names and the ranks and the serial numbers, as it were, all of these Chinese communist assets deployed around the world to do the bidding of the Chinese government? Is that really a watershed moment in trying to stop China's advance on its mission of being the world superpower? I think the data and the number of Communist Party members around the world, this data is a tip of an iceberg. And we all know among Chinese, many people coming to United States and going to Europe and Australia, many of them are Communist Party. They have family members and they have a business and they have strong ties with Communist Party. And since they are members, they are still loyal to the Communist Party. So if the Communist Party needs, they will serve the party. I don't mean every party member is like that. I don't mean every Chinese, but there are a lot that have been strategically placed at critical and information-sensitive positions in these companies and the government organizations. Uh, let me give an example. Around year 2001, I was talking with a think tank director in D.C., and she told me that they did a survey. Within a very short period of time, many Congress offices on the Hill, either the, the lead staff director of the staff or congressman or some, uh, someone that play key role, on the hill, they suddenly start to have a Chinese girlfriend, and they did a survey to about more than 200 of them. So it's not just one case. And then at the same time, and you see news that CEOs of major corporations get divorced and marry a 30-year younger Chinese wife. So, and these are not coincident. It's a strategically planned. But later on, that's twenty. That's about twenty years ago. And later on, China get more business and money. So it's a woman plus money, and it had corrupted a lot of people. And uh, with respect to the the Hunter Biden piece of this story, uh, as it continues to develop and more emails come out of his communications with uh, with uh, the chairman, former chairman of the CEFC, that uh, huge communist Chinese backed uh, energy company and others, uh, the partnerships, the joint ventures and so forth. Yeah, it's a typical. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of what I mean. It's, 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 it should be it should not be surprising to us that that because that's China's M.O. It just should be a warning to us as how high they can get, how quickly to compromise people. 
exactly for them it's more economic it's cheaper to corrupt high-level officials then conquer a whole country. China, the Communist Party, CCP, has always seen America as the number one enemy. And their goal is to overtake America and become the world leader because the communists always see the free world as a threat and America is the leader of the free world. And this is the strategy they use globally. I have heard from, like, diplomats I know, when they go to China and they know that hotel rooms are monitored, the high-end hotel, those hotel rooms are monitored. So in the evening, there are women trying to get into those rooms. Even if you lock your door and try to resist that kind of uh, arrangement, you wake up next morning without knowing a naked woman can be lying beside you. It's all on camera. Sure. So, well, that's the excuse I always use. Well, exactly. Uh, I mean, the that's Chinese the way communists. to close the deal. Now I, hear what, now, I hear what you're saying. And with respect to the um, the situation with COVID in China right now, it's there's there's a lot of, not surprisingly, conflicting stories. There's a suggestion that the they have developed a, sort of five different vaccines and they're already exporting them to countries that over over which they want to have some influence, including in South America, like Brazil. There's the, there, but there's the suggestion that's been made by Chinese nationals that I've heard even coming from the Hill to staffers on the Hill that actually they had the vaccine. They had a vaccine back in September and that Beijing has zero, zero, like hard number, round egg, zero COVID cases. What, what, what is your handle on the reality of COVID-19 in China at this point, including the efficacy of any vaccine they've developed? Well, they are certainly competing with U.S. and the West. Uh, in developing vaccine. Uh, I don't think they are so advanced because we heard that people traveling from China who have taken the uh, vaccine and uh, travel to uh, Africa and other countries, they were tested positive. So if everything reported just directly from China, you can believe that it's a CCP media. And the goal of the CCP media is to, to control and to lie. The the Just reason like that yeah. the co- the the reason the COVID get reported is because people travel from China to other countries, and it's discovered in other countries. And so, so it, it, yeah, no, I, I hear so I hear what you're saying. So they're sort of sort of offloading uh, any discernible cases to continue the facade of having no cases, having defeated COVID and so forth. What, what, with respect to your piece, and you talk, I grew up in communist China. Here's my warning to America. I mean, there are so many related to the Chinese communists, but what, what is the overriding message that you want Americans to understand about the perspective of the, the Chinese communists in charge of that country? I think America see China as different from like Soviet Union. Soviet Union, and people say that's a communist, but China cloned the whole system from Soviet Union. Um, it control people's, it control media, control people's words. It try to take individual rights from people. It try to incite hatred. It use one group against another group, and it has it try to. Um, stop people from, um, you know, believing in their Buddhas and Daos. Those are the fundamental foundation of the society. It's moral foundation. Communists would destroy them all. And nationals uh, 
heritage and the culture. Communists would destroy it all. Recently, what I've seen in America is more and more is similar to what I have seen when I was growing up in China. And that's very sad. We immigrated here. We came here because of the freedom here. And it's very, very sad to see that. Dana Chang, Senior Editor of China News for the Epoch Times. Dana, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and... uh Thinking about uh, assessing the uh, Trump administration and the the Trump years and prospectively of Trump as a political leader in this country and within the Republican Party, the good, the bad and the uh, sort of incalculable. One of the areas where there is legitimate criticism of Trump is the people with whom he surrounded himself, you know, from the campaign, which was a bit of a ragtag crew in 2016 to some that uh, not only he indulged when he became president that were from Trump world but also some that he tolerated who were not of Trump world, who were active enemies inside the perimeter. And perhaps that should have been understood and he should have moved more swiftly. Jim Comey comes to mind. And then, you know, sort of his his understanding of the dynamic in D.C. such that there are all these forces that encourage those in positions of profile to serve interests other than the president's agenda. It sort of was thinking about this. Uh, I, I was uh, prompted by this piece that Rachel Bovard wrote, Too Few of the President's Men. Rachel Bovard is a Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute, and she joins us now. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so um, the talent around President Trump, I think there's you know sort of various measures. One is actual sophistication and skill set. The other is certainly with respect to Trump and any president, a matter of loyalty. And uh, there were a lot of high profile turncoats of the Trump administration, one would argue, certainly if you're arguing from Trump's perspective. I don't know if it was more than you get in a lot of administrations, but it seemed to me there was a lot more spectacle with respect to Trump. I guess that was sort of the order of the day across the board than perhaps previous administrations with respect to uh, dissidents. Yeah, I think that was a, a fact. two reasons why this happened. I think the media was giving extreme scrutiny to the Trump administration in ways that they've never really done before. I mean, you had White House press corps covering other presidents, but never to the depth of reporting every single rumor. And I think before or since, I think the Trump administration was unique in that regard. So it gave the impression, I think, of a lot more turmoil than sometimes there actually was. But that said, there was a lot of turmoil and turnover. And I think that was in part due to the president's personality himself. I mean, he likes sort of a chaotic management style. I think that became clear. He enjoys sort of setting up internal rivalries. Yeah, some of the team of rival stuff is okay if it's, uh, you know, substantive. Some of it, and, and, and some of this too, comes from his previous life in the business world. And you bring along, you made decisions that come back to haunt you, I guess, in public life. I think of, you know, choosing Michael Cohen, who is sort of a marginally competent attorney as your go-to fixer guy. Yeah, it's just um, you know, having people like that around you sort of 
Well, it does inspire confidence. Yeah. You know, personal loyalty, I think, was a big part of what attracted President Trump to several of his staff picks. You know, also the appearance of heft and gravitas and experience in multiple areas of the business world. And that doesn't always translate well into the political arena, particularly when you're dealing with entire agencies of, you know, thousands of, of bureaucrats who a lot of times have their own agendas. And that takes a particular skill set to be able to sort of manage that kind of institution full of political players um, in their own right. And, you know, we saw this in particular with picks like, you know, Rex Tillerson at the Department of State uh, very early on. Rex Tillerson, former CEO of ExxonMobil, arguably very competent in that regard, but didn't necessarily have the skill set that didn't translate well to managing a bureaucracy full of, you know, what I call the peace political vipers, you know, people who are out for his head. Um, and that didn't work out so well. So I think you saw a, a little bit of that as well. Well, there's no question. And the other thing, too, you sort of mentioned it, alluded to it just there, talking about, you know, go, going people of status, you know, Mad Dog Mattis, going with the generals, John Kelly. And it'd be one thing if you say, well, um, you know, understand this is my management style. You're going to be more buttoned down, so we may butt heads. Didn't seem like there was that understanding with those individuals, in addition to just a very different worldview, uh, foreign policy worldview, national security worldview between President Trump and, say, General Mattis, his uh, secta for a while there, uh, with respect to you know, particular areas of the world. And it seems like that stuff should have been flushed out. You know, don't fall in love with a uniform. Make sure we're on the same page, sort of philosophically. We're coming from the same place. So uh, we hash things out, uh, understanding we're trying to get to the same place. Yeah, that was a key error, I think, made in a lot of the personnel decisions in the Trump administration. And I don't know, you know, if it was the lack of political experience from Trump himself, right? He'd never been a politician before. And, you know, I don't know if he expected the people he hired to, to implement his agenda instead of their own. But that's obviously not what we saw. Uh, we saw people who with very different visions from the president bucking his direction in a lot of ways. I think it goes to sort of the central feature of, of personnel in Washington is that they must have philosophical alignment with their principles. So in this case, the president, he needed to have people who sort of grasped his vision and were willing to sort of bend the levers of power to implement it. And that was a key failing, a key lack in this administration. Uh, we're going to be back with Rachel Bovard, and we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, prospective Biden presidency and the challenges he's going to be have, and he may already be imposing on himself with some of his selections for cabinet secretaries. More with Rachel Bovard, Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute, Conservative Partnership Institute, right after that. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, AOC, uh, the front woman for the Socialist Spice Girls, uh, she has made her opinions about the need for new leadership in the Democrat Socialist Party very clear, and uh, she is uh, starting to be more vociferous about those views uh, against the backdrop of the perspective by the administration. A recent podcast saying it's uh, time for Pelosi and Schumer to go. We don't really have a plan other than it's time for them to go. And uh, I suspect that when we start to talk about some of these cabinet secretaries and some of the initial uh, agenda items on the Biden policy agenda, you're going to hear more from Cortez and her fellow socialist Spice Girls. Listen. Well, you know, I do think that we need new leadership in the Democratic Party. I think one of the things that I have struggled with, I think that a lot of people struggle with, is the internal dynamics of the House has made it such that there's very little 
option for succession, if you will, you know, and I think that one could just, I, I think it's easy for someone to say, oh, well, you know, why don't you run? But the house is extraordinarily complex and I'm not ready. <laughs> it can't be me. I know that I couldn't do that job. And so even conservative um, members of the party who think Nancy Pelosi is far too liberal for them don't necessarily have any viable alternatives, which is why whenever there's a challenge, it kind of collapses. Um, and that is, I think, the result of just many years of power being concentrated in leadership with a lack of, you know, real grooming of a next generation of leadership. And so when you have really talented members of Congress that do come along, the opportunities to lead are so few and far between that they leave. I, I tell you what, for the first time in forever, uh, I agree with AOC's formulation in part. I mean, she has the problem of the concentration of power and leadership properly diagnosed. Uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, against the backdrop of the prospect that they could still take back the Senate, depending on what happens on January 5th in Georgia, uh, they narrowly maintain control of the House. They look to have the presidency. Uh, is this call in this sort of lame duck period for a change in leadership <laughs> at the highest levels? Very interesting and I think instructive. For more on this, we're pleased to be rejoined by Rachel Bovard, Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Uh, Rachel, uh, it sort of speaks to not only uh, – where a desire for the socialist backbenchers to assert themselves in terms of personnel, but also where they're going to be if uh, uh, Biden and Harris are too tentative in areas of policy, such as, well, I don't know, for example, immigration. While Biden has suggested that he'll move to provide amnesty for DACA designees post-haste when he is inaugurated, I mean, th this is a crew that wants ICE eliminated, and for the border for that matter. Yeah, they are much further to the left than Joe Biden himself and, you know, have indicated they want to flex their muscles to influence his his cabinet picks, although obviously the House doesn't play a role in those confirmations. So I assume their role would be sort of more an outside PR uh, position. But, you know, I do think that this is the challenge for Joe Biden. He's, he, he's, as he himself has said numerous times, he's the head of the Democrat Party, but that party does not necessarily reflect his own views. Uh, it is increasingly much further to the left than he, he is himself. And you're seeing this with the, with the picks, the cabinet picks he's already suggesting. Um, he is bringing back a lot of the Obama crowd, a lot of the 90s Democrat crowd, which doesn't really reflect his current uh, current party. So the technocrats are in charge again. And I think you're going to see the progressives uh, really sort of voice their displeasure. Well, it'll be interesting because, I mean, I, you know, that that starts from the premise that I reject, which is that Biden has any particular views. I mean, he's a cipher. <laughs> and so what he what he's trying to do is is middle the uh, the the old guard with the socialists. And so he's going to get hit by traffic going both ways because he is such an empty suit. That's inevitable. And you see it happening already with the identitarians and his cabinet picks, as you were sort of referencing. But the, the difference, it seems to me, like the idea that, oh, the old Obama staffers won't I implement the Bernie Sanders policy agenda. I actually think they will. And I think that wasn't that really the reason they rejected Bernie Sanders is because you can't get all that stuff through the front door. You have to do it the way that Obama did it. You have to go through the back door. You you can't do it straight away. And so th th there's openness, I think, to trying to get through the back door. It's more how you market it than the substance of what you're attempting to do. I think that 
that's right in part in the sense that the former Obama officials, now you know, potentially Biden officials, are very malleable, right? To your point, I think Democrats are increasingly willing to be very ideologically flexible as their party moves to the left. And so, you know, I do think you will see elements of the Sanders agenda in the Biden administration. But I also think people forget how radical Barack Obama was and how radical his administration was, because to your point, much of what they did was just in using sort of the regulatory state or the, the mechanisms of the bureaucracy, things that don't really rise to the surface of day-to-day activity. Um, but their their radicalism was, was very insidious in the sense that it was very globalist, right? Uh, Obama put us far more in bed with China than we'd ever been before. He deferred American sovereignty in our trade deals. He gave you know immunity to the big tech, big tech platforms. If you remember, the FTC was investigating Google for antitrust violations way back in 2012, and Obama made that go away. And so, you know, his radicalism, I think, existed in within the government itself, and then also rose to levels like DACA, right? The, the illegal executive amnesty that he penned by executive order after saying for months that it was illegal for him to do so. And as a constitutional scholar, he said he would know he did it anyway. And so that is the type of behavior we are going to see from a Biden administration, which requires the, the only antidote to it is a very strong and muscular Congress. Now, that's up for grabs in the Senate, which we don't know who's going to be in control yet because of the two Georgia Senate runoffs. But if Republicans are to eke out a narrow majority, they are the only bulwark standing between that kind of agenda uh, and the American people are the only ones that can enforce any kind of restraint on Joe Biden. Well, right. I, I agree. And, I, and it's funny to listen to AOC talk about conservatives in her party in the House. I mean, that's just sort of like this imaginary group that she's created because she needs something to be against. She, she needs to present this binary like, you know, we're the progressives and they're the conservatives. We're the new guard. They're the old guard, even though in terms of the again, the substance of the policy agenda, it, there is not much daylight between those supposed uh, factions that exist. No, that's right. Uh, you know, she very much, I think, muscles her agenda through the House and, and really has changed the way Democrats talk about things. I mean, I will give her credit. She she has been very impactful in changing the face of the nature and scope of what Democrats want to do. Uh, and intend to do. So I, I know she says she's not ready to be speaker. Um, I think she could probably do the job and, and we should be a little terrified by that. Uh, more than a little. Rachel Bovard, Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Show.com. Time now for another reason why Dan Proft is single. So I'm playing golf the other day with a few guys, and uh, one of the guys who uh, didn't know me just was introduced, asked, you know, married, you have kids? I said, no, never married, not kids. And he said, why don't you want to be happy? And everybody had a good laugh. Uh, the That brings us to this case today of why Dan Proft is single. Uh, all the way from uh, uh, the, uh, the country of uh, Zambia. These are uh, 220-somethings. Gertrude is her name. Herbert is his name. They've been dating for eight years. Uh, now, Herbert promised Gertrude 
that they were indeed going to marry one day because eight years is a long time to be dating someone, at least according to the author of this piece at rare.us. But, um, and so Gertrude got so fed up that the question had been popped that she took the matters into her own hands. She took him to court. She sued him. Yeah. Um, she, (laughs) She took him to his ambient court and she said, he's never been serious. That's why I brought him to court, because I deserve to know the way forward and the future. Now, it is worth noting the couple has a child together, and they've already organized a dowry payment. Well, that's nice. Uh, but they don't have the financial security to pay for a wedding, apparently. Um, now, Herbert took it a step further, told the court that his girlfriend hadn't given him the attention that he believed he deserved. And that was another reason why he was holding back on asking her to marry him in addition to the financial security issue. So the uh, judge presiding over the case, thankfully, is a little bit more grown up than this couple. And he kicked the case and said, um, you reconcile your differences outside of this court of law like a normal couple because, you know, suing somebody to prompt them to marry you is insane. That's why. Now, I know what you're thinking. If I was the judge in this case, uh, not in the position of Herbert, because I would never be, but in the position of the judge, because, you know, yeah, got the law degree, I don't know, go over to Zambia, pass the bar, whatever their bar is, maybe. Uh, here's what I would do. I would rule in favor of the boyfriend. I would cite the girlfriend for contempt for bringing a frivolous case and wasting the court's time. Let her have a couple of days in jail to cool off. Think about uh, her life choices. Think about uh, her choice of attempted dispute resolution. And also uh, give Herbert, the boyfriend, uh, enough time to make his getaway. And that's why Dan Proft is single. And thank you so much for joining us on this edition of the Dan Proft Show. Stay informed. Stay sensible. Stay courageous. You don't have to stay single, but stay those other things. And stay tuned. Sitting in for me tomorrow, by the way. Honored to have Julie Kelly from American Greatness, amgreatness.com, and she's got a great lineup of guests, so you want to tune in for Julie Kelly. Otherwise, have a wonderful weekend, and thank you for tuning in all week. This is the Dan Proft Show.